1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, from rising interest rates to stubborn inflation numbers to a struggling economy, when does the financial rough ride end? Plus, the power of convenience as app-based delivery services continue to grow. We look at the explosion of ghost kitchens in Vancouver. Plus, 50 years ago today, Rick Hansen was paralyzed from the waist down after suffering spinal cord injuries in a car accident. In an emotional trip, he revisits the site of the life-altering accident near his hometown of Williams Lake. The man in motion joins us to look back on the day that changed his life. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Let's talk air conditioning. Now, the British Columbia government today announced it's giving BC Hydro $10 million to provide up to $8,000, or sorry, up to 8,000 free air conditioning units to vulnerable uh, people. Now, a death review panel by the BC Coroner's Service found that most of the 619 people who died in BC's heat dome in 2021 were low income, they're vulnerable people, uh, and they were 60 years of age and older. One of the key recommendations from that panel was that the government provide air conditioning units to those living in single room apartments. Uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix made the announcement today. Take a listen.
2: In addition, health authorities will work with their home health teams to identify community-based vulnerable clients and assist them in working with BC Hydro to gain access to free air conditioning units through this program. BC Hydro has already launched a pilot program, as you know, to begin providing access to air conditioning units, and this additional $10 million is expected to offer approximately 8,000 more units to vulnerable people across the province. This program will start by by, uh, supporting lower income and vulnerable individuals who are at higher risk of heat-related impacts. With the initial funding of $10 million, Approximately, as I noted, 8,000 air conditioning units can be installed over the next three years. It is anticipated that at least 50% of air conditioning units will be installed in apartments or multi-unit dwellings with the balance in single-family dwellings. And BC Hydro will work with a contractor to assess electrical requirements, air conditioner replacement, installation, and provide training on how to use the air conditioner.
1: Uh, BC Hydro President Chris O'Reilly says the utility will also offer all customers $50 off purchases of qualified energy-saving air conditioning units as well. He spoke at the press conference today. Take a listen.
3: We know many people in BC are struggling with extreme heat and that there are often limited options available to them when it comes to cooling. As our once milder springs and summers become warmer, air conditioning is no longer being considered a luxury among British Columbians. It is so vital that we get air conditioning to those who really need it. Our most vulnerable populations, including seniors, those with disabilities, and lower-income populations. And that's why this funding announcement is so important.
1: Joining me now to talk about today's announcement uh, is Nadine Nakagawa. She is New Westminster City Council. She's been on the show before to discuss the uh, issue of uh, air conditioning uh, in rental units as well. Uh, Ms. Nakagawa, thank you for joining us today.
0: Yeah, nice to talk to you again. Uh,
1: First of all, your thoughts on this announcement. uh, Good news day, or do you think there more more should have been done because of the fact that we've had the heat dome in 2021?
0: Well, I would say it's both. Um, It is good news. Clearly, people need access to air conditioners. We don't want our neighbours to die in another heat dome. But, you know, there's been recommendations that's done, like in in the uh, death review panel, it was actually a recommendation to do a study, which it looks like they didn't do. Um, and and also coming from the Vancouver Design Panel, which had some disability justice advocates on it, they actually recommended making the air conditioners a medical device. So I think there's some nuance that was missed in, in this sort of rollout of this plan, mm-hmm. perhaps because the study wasn't done. And, you know, I would just add to this that, I just myself signed a lease for rent and in that lease agreement, I'm not allowed to have an air conditioner unit in my building. Like I don't have health vulnerabilities, but if there was somebody in my building who does, this doesn't help them because they're not allowed to have it in their lease agreement. So there's more that needs to be done sort of on that side of of it as well.
1: So let me just uh, touch on the first comment that you made about air conditioners being made a medical device. Can you elaborate on that?
0: Well, this is a recommendation that came from the Vancouver Design Panel, uh-huh. and I know they are thinking about who gets access to it and how they get access. Um, so I think that there's there's some work to be done there because, again, this sounds like a great program, um, but I think it is concerning that um, people may not be allowed to have it based on their housing type. Um, so there might be other, you know, they're, they're thinking about providing the units, but they're not uh, thinking about whether or not folks are allowed to have it. So perhaps that perhaps that medical device might allow uh, folks to get around that from a tenancy side. Uh,
1: you could also argue that we've been a little slow off the mark here. The, the fact that Washington, Oregon State, to so far from what I've read, have delivered 23,000 air cooling units since that heat dome in 2021. We are just getting to an announcement stage today.
0: Yeah, we're lucky that we haven't had another heat event um, in in the time in between that, the one in 2021, which is two years ago mm-hmm. now. Um, so we're, we're really fortunate that we haven't had those extreme heats and temperatures. So, you know, I really support programs being done right and being done thoughtfully. And, and sometimes that does mean uh, some consideration and some thought. Uh, so better late than never. Um, glad it's being done now, and I think there's so much more that we need to do. Um,
1: you just mentioned that uh, you signed a lease for rental, and, and you're not allowed to have an air conditioner. What's the reasoning behind it? I'm curious.
0: I, I, I didn't ask the landlord, <laughs> but I, I think it's because often they don't want things sticking out of buildings. Um, they don't want them unsecured. They don't like the look of it. Um, there, I think there's lots of reasons, and, and when I was talking uh, about the issue that came to the local, lower mainland local government conference, which is about amending the Residential Tenancy Act. We, you and I had a conversation about that. A lot of people got back to me and said, "Yeah, my landlord doesn't allow me to have it," um, or that they are it won't work in their building. So, where I used to live, where I just moved from, I lived in a in a studio suite, and so I had a sliding glass door, and air conditioners aren't going to work for that unless maybe it's custom built or or whatever else. Um, and that seems really unlikely that folks are going to be able to get something like that. So. Again, there's there's a couple of reasons why this still has gaps in it, and that's that, uh, you know, landlords are saying that you're not allowed to have a, a, rent, a cooling unit, but also that it might not work for the physical, you know, the logistical side of your building.
1: Now, you mentioned the fact that you, last time you were on this program, we did talk about um, uh, a proposal before the Lower Mainland Local Government Association about making landlords responsible for uh, a cooling unit for tenants, just as they're responsible for providing heating for a unit. Uh, That uh, motion was voted down, although I think you were mentioning at that time it was a very close vote. Uh, So could that come back again next year? Do you expect that type of motion or that conversation to come back again, either through the local government association or another entity?
0: I sure hope so. I mean, I would support it coming back. Again, the problem with that is that You know, that'll be next spring. Then it goes to Union of BC municipalities, which would be September 2024. Mm -hmm. And then we'd have to update the, the, the bylaw. You know, there's, we're talking about years and years to, to roll this out. And we could have another heat dome like that, an extreme weather event at any time, really. So, um, there is a sense of urgency that I don't think is being captured in our response to this. Mm -hmm. So, um, my colleague Tasha Henderson and I are looking to do something like that locally in New West. Maybe that's a model that municipalities could pick up in the interim. I still do think it should be in the Tenancy Act, but we need to respond. And and again, if people need a cooling unit in their building, we need they need to be able to ha- access one great that PC Hydra is providing it but then it's the other end uh, making sure that they're allowed to have it in their building.
1: So in the case of New West and what you're hoping to do there would be basically the city would purchase cooling units where I guess you could buy a Canadian tire and you come you can take it to your home and and plug them in is, is it kind of like a you borrow them for a week or you put a deposit down is that how they would work?
0: So we just got a report late last night um, about this, that we will be also uh, providing some some units to folks who are low income. And the details of that are still to come. But what I would actually like is I would like us to update our bylaws to say that uh, housing units require cooling just as they require heating and looking to see that if we can do that on the local level. So it's more than the city providing air conditioner units, because again, we still run into the issue of landlords saying that you can't have them and them not working for the unit, but saying that actually... We need it built into
1: the housing stock itself. Uh, Nadine, thank you so much for your time. Today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I don't know about you. you. You read the newspaper these days. You don't know really know what's up. Sometimes you know you read the Vancouver Sun today. Uh, they had a headline that said the BC economy is in for a rough ride. They were quoting a TD Bank. Uh, economic uh, forecast uh, we of course were just talking about interest rates expected to go up uh, next month, potentially we had news today of course interest uh, sorry in, um, inflation numbers are slowly uh, heading in the right direction they are going lower three point four percent increase nationally and here in British Columbia as well. I was looking at the Washington Post. they actually had a glowing article on Canada's economy about four or five days ago. The Daily Telegraph in the UK, I was looking at that. Also another uh, glowing uh, article uh, or opinion piece on uh, our economy as well. It's hard to sort of decipher what's good, what's challenging, what are some of the um, hurdles we have to get beyond moving forward. But our next guest has a good sense of things. Uh, I don't expect anybody to have all the answers, but certainly uh, our next guest uh, looks at the numbers, crunches the numbers. His name is Murray Leith. He's executive. Vice President and Director of Investment Research at Audlum Brown, an organization that's been around for a long time and has gone through a, a depression, has seen, of course, a 2008 economic crisis and many other uh, challenges when it comes to our finances. So is a perfect, perfect person to speak to when it comes to understanding the markets today. And now, Marie, thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, there's a lot going on. And I said, Murray Leith is the right guy to speak to when it comes to um, this market. Your thoughts, first of all, the overall snapshot of uh, of our economy here in Canada and some of the bigger issues that I think most people really care about, which is interest rates, inflation. Where do you think we're at?
3: Um, I think we're at a, a point in time where we're, we're we're having to pay for some of the mistakes of the past for – Nine of the last 15 years, our central bank and the U.S. central bank had interest rate administered interest rates pegged at zero. And those are the interest rates that set all the other interest rates in our economy. And we were printing a lot of money. And, uh, you know, that certainly uh, got us out of the financial crisis. It got us through the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we thank the authorities for doing that, uh, but they overdid it. Uh, too much cheap and easy money has put us in a place where we have the worst inflation in 40 years, and so we're having to play catch up for the, for you know being too easy and get inflation under control. And they've slammed on the brakes, vis a vis raising interest uh, interest rates, mm-hmm. and that's you know that's going to cause the economy to slow down by design, uh, because unfortunately that's the the tough medicine uh, to put. You know the, the inflation that we've experienced behind us. So, you know the economic outlook is for things to get tougher, unfortunately, in the near term. Uh,
1: so, unlike what most people are saying, beyond what the government did in its fiscal policy during the, um, the COVID pandemic period, you're saying this is this is an issue that we that started much earlier than that.
3: That would be my argument. Yes.
1: Um, do you still see more interest rate hikes here in Canada?
3: I think it's possible. I think the thing that we have to keep in mind is that there is always a big lag, um, you know, upwards of two years, uh, you know, from changes in interest rates and when they work their way through the economy. Mm -hmm. And we're only about, um, you know, 15 months into the the rate tightening cycle. uh, So we're starting to see things slow down. I think we're going to continue to see uh, more of that, whether or not we have to raise rates more or much more um, time will tell mm-hmm. I don't think a lot more I think there's a lot of um, slowdown already in the economic pipeline it's just going to take time before
1: it shows up mm-hmm. And some have said look it's easy to go from six percent inflation down to three that that you can do but when you try to go from three down to two and keep it under two that's when the real challenge comes because those are small or incremental changes that, that, that need to occur
3: well, that's that's true, but you know, at the end of the day, you know, a year and a half ago, who was telling us that we were going to have the spike in inflation? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, most economists, most strategists were not, you know, telling us to, to to watch out for it on the horizon. And and so I think we have to take with a grain of salt to all the advice that's flying around out there. Uh, successful investing is is not about being able to predict inflation six months down the road or two years down the road.
1: Um, It's hard to, I mean, uh, I've often joked that uh, without uh, real estate in Vancouver, what would we talk about at Vancouver dinner parties? But, you know, it it plays such an important role uh, in our economy. Moving forward, if interest rates remain at a reasonable rate, 5%, 5.5%, whatever that may be, uh, where do you think real estate is headed in, in, in a broader perspective here in the lower mainland? I mean, it's always been high uh, beyond compared to other markets. But in regards to playing such a big role in our economy, is that going to perhaps stabilize a little bit more moving forward?
3: Well, you know, I think you're going to have to take what I have to say with a grain of salt. I bought my first home 21 years ago and I thought I was buying it at the high. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously that wasn't the case. Um, Real estate has done phenomenally well. Um, But, you know, back, you know, today compared to back then, the average price of a Vancouver home relative to income. Or rents relative to income are a lot higher today. So, sort of the value proposition isn't nearly as good as it was a couple of decades ago. So, Mm -hmm. I think we shouldn't be as optimistic that uh, home prices can keep going up at the rate that they've been going up. Um, They got a, a, you know, over the course of the pandemic, home prices in Canada and US went up roughly 45%. And that was despite the world shutting down. And that was really driven by central banks that lowered interest rates to zero. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so the fact that we're normalizing interest rates, um, I think, is a positive re- thing for a whole bunch of other reasons. Um for one, it fuels inequality when, because uh, it's the people that own the homes and own all the assets that benefit the most from those policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a bit of a leveling of the playing field that uh, comes about when you you you, you um, normalize interest rates. Um, but I, you know, I, I, you know, I think home prices can still go up over time. Just don't expect them to go up as
1: fast as they have over the last decade. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that we spent so much time talking about uh, here in Canada, in the 1990s was of course our debt uh, and deficit spending. And, you know, I think most Canadians say, look, we understand deficit spending. even was significant deficit spending during, during the pandemic, but we were def- the deficit spending was already built in uh, much earlier than that, especially under Mr. Trudeau uh, when he was elected in 2015. Um, uh, In regards to the conversation in and around deficits and debt, um, what's your sense of things? I mean, do you think Ottawa is going to get to the point where they finally start taking this stuff seriously? Because it does drag uh, when it comes to our budgets, a drag on the economy. Um, Or do you think we're going to continue to see deficit spending uh, for the next little while?
3: I I think we're going to, you know, certainly if we go into a recession, deficits tend to go up Mm -hmm. um, as governments... You know, the cost of providing unemployment insurance and, and other, you know, stabilizers go up during a recession. So it's, it's hard to believe that deficits come down uh, as the economy slows and we possibly go into recession. But, you know, we're also not running deficits as, as big as, as Americans. Um, and, and our, you know, federal debt is, is more uh, manageable, I'd argue. Uh, frankly, I worry more about consumer debt. Hmm. In this country, I think that's where we should be concerned and focused.
1: And, and, is, and is that, and, and has that, in your mind, been driven by predominantly the, the low interest rate environment? That yes, you can afford to put everything on the credit cards, or the money is cheap to borrow. Of course, you should have that. I think is that's what's driven most of this. That's what's driven most of this.
3: And, and you know, we didn't we didn't feel the pain that the Americans felt uh, after the financial crisis. They mm-hmm. had. Uh, a horrendous correction in, in their housing market. We had one, but it didn't last very long. Uh, the whole world was telling us that we were better, that we had better regulators, better bankers. And I don't argue with that, but uh, we kept on borrowing and spending. We kept on borrowing and buying homes. And and the Americans learned um, that it's maybe not a great idea to have variable rate mortgages uh, when interest rates went up. So go up so they learned that lesson they take out 30 year fixed rate mortgages during the pandemic when rates were really low more than half of the mortgages that were taken out were of the variable variety and that was great when rates were low but they're a lot higher now and so uh, the rate increases are going to are going to hurt or bite more in this country than they are south of the border and and we have as as consumers we have a lot more leverage uh, than our counterpart south of the border.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, let me just uh, get to our economy just for a second here. You know, we, we're in the midst of this sort of conversation around climate change, we are still heavily reliant on the tax dollars that the fossil fuels provide, particularly from our oil sands. Yet we have this drive to go green um, You know, when it comes to electric cars, greening our economy in regards to how we build our homes, all of that. It's all now being tested and, and, and we are making that shift to a certain degree. How do you view the Canadian economy? Uh, are we still too reliant on resource development, which is not a bad thing, uh, but do you think overall that we, we are or a balanced economy, certainly when it comes to British Columbia, or do you think we have more work to do?
3: Well, I, I think we're a country of real estate speculators, quite <laughs> frankly, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and I'm not making a joke. If you look at you know residential uh, investment as percentage of GDP, it's a it's a chart that just rises to the right. It's been going up uh, over the years, over the decades, and conversely, if you look at um, uh, investment in equipment and machinery and research and development, uh, that trend's going in the opposite direction. It's a, it's a smaller and smaller uh, part of GDP. And real estate speculation is great. You know, when home prices are going up and the wealth is being spread around uh, and that trickles down into the economy, but it can't go on forever. We're not building anything. Um, and its it's our future that's going to be driven by investment in research and development plant and equipment and you know we are doing that but we could we could do a lot more of that and less speculating in real estate markets and i think we're i think that's naturally going to happen with this normalization of interest rates so i think the process is already underway but you know in, in vancouver and in british columbia we've had tremendous growth in in the technology sector uh and you know you Mention climate change and, and and the greening of the the economy, you know, we are investing in those things and jobs are being creative. So we, we are doing a lot of the right things. Mm-hmm. We just have to do more of
1: it. Yeah, and no, I think you're right. I mean, even with LNG, it, it is a fossil fuel, but it is a transition a trans- transitional fuel when we talk about natural gas. And there is there are smaller LNG facilities being improved, Cedar LNG just being the, the latest one with a $3 billion investment. Uh, final question to you. What keeps you up at night in regards to Canada and British Columbia and our economy in, in regards to what we're doing?
3: what keeps me up at night you know i think i've been in the investment business for 35 years and i it, you know a fear of it you know runaway inflation has always been the the, the thing that will make um things toughest for our clients um because higher inflation means higher interest rates and and interest rates have a huge influence on the valuation of homes and stocks and bonds and um i think the situation is underhand but it's something that i've always worried about Mm -hmm. and i guess the other thing you know i worry about inequality i see tremendous inequality in the world and you know a lot of that i said has been driven by ultra-low interest rates, and that's been great for the people that own the assets that keep getting inflated. Uh, but rich or poor, if we stay on this track where inequality keeps getting worse, um, it's not going to be good politically, and it's not going to be good for anybody, I don't think. So I, I think we you know, need to figure out how to
1: have a more balanced economy. Mm-hmm. Marie, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. As we all know, food delivery services let you order whatever you want to eat with just the click of a button. So, burgers, pizza, sushi, a dish from your favorite local restaurant, whatever it may be they all arrive right on uh, your doorstep. You don't need to dine in or even drive anywhere to pick up the meal. Now, of course, this type of service uh, has grown, especially uh, during uh, the pandemic. And there's lots of apps you can use to, of course, order the the food, skip the dishes, Uber Eats, Grubhub, DoorDash, HelloFresh. Now, besides ordering from known restaurants, there has been a proliferation of ghost kitchens, also known as dark kitchens. They're commercial kitchens that have been set up for food delivery services you're essentially opening a restaurant without opening a restaurant uh, there are many of these so-called ghost dark dark kitchens in vancouver now wow bow an asian fast casual concept from chicago is entering the local market joining me now to discuss the growth of dark kitchens is jeff alexander president and ceo of wow bow jeff thank you for joining us today Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. So tell me a little bit about your expansion into Vancouver.
4: Sure. So we are a Chicago-based company here in the United States. started 20 years ago, coming this August. And we've done sports stadiums, college campuses, airports, music venues. And in 2019, we had the idea that other restaurants could sell our product out their back door on third-party delivery as a new revenue stream. And we started to build this idea out and then COVID came. The pandemic started in March of 2000 and and, uh, restaurant dining rooms were shut down. And we expanded over the next three years. We opened 700 locations between the U S and Canada. It's interesting because for years our number one most requested franchise location was, has been Canada, all over Canada. People have been asking if they can open this brand up there and, since the, uh, the, the pandemic, we've been able to expand into that region.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: now, explain to me how the concept specifically works. I think people generally know what a ghost kitchen is, but walk us through what a ghost kitchen is and also how your particular model works in regards to using up free uh, kitchen space.
4: Sure. Thank you for the question. So we actually refer to ourselves as a dark kitchen program, meaning that there's unutilized, underutilized or unused space in an operating restaurant's kitchen, which is dark, right? That area is not being utilized. Mm -hmm. And we believe we can give the operator a way to turn those lights back on and actually use that kitchen. So our product comes from the United States, fully cooked and, and shipped up into Canada, where the operators then, the restaurateurs, finish off the product. They get it through distribution channels and they finish it the exact same way we finish in our restaurants. Everything is steamed which is the cleanest form of cooking. Also, the easiest just boiling water. And the food is then prepared on site by the restaurant to be transported out in delivery. Uh,
1: the broader issue of the um, a dark kitchen, the virtual kitchen, whatever you wish to call it, is the industry still uh, growing or, or, or sort of did it peak during COVID? or Is, still, is there still room for further growth?
4: It's so funny that question because I get asked it a lot, and I sort of consider ourselves in like the second inning of a nine inning baseball game.
5: It's like we just,
4: as a child, we like literally just learned how to stand up, and we haven't even started walking yet. I mean, that's how young this notion of virtual restaurants is. I understand that it exploded over a three year period, and now people's like, okay, I'm going back to regular business, but. The explosion is just the beginning of what's coming and delivery is not going anywhere. The generation that's up and coming based on how they utilize technology wants what they want when they want it. They want to just push a button, have food delivered to them or whatever it may be. So delivery is absolutely going to continue to grow. You look at the large companies, DoorDash, Uber, skip the dishes and so on. These are not small companies. They're betting the farm. And they're going to con- continue to innovate and evolve their offerings. And they need more products to be putting through their system. So I 100% to believe that we are in the very early stages of uh, the virtual space and will continue to see incredible uh, advances in the space in the coming months and years.
1: So in this case, do, do one of the representatives from your company go to a restaurant here in Vancouver and say, look, do you have free kitchen space available We'd like to, uh, to utilize it. We believe that uh, it's a win-win situation for, for obviously your company and for that restaurant, too, that may have that free space. Is it a case of you sourcing out these restaurants?
4: You know, we've been very fortunate over these three years that it's been all inbound queries coming to us, and we have not had to put a sales team out there knocking on doors and calling up and asking. And the, the number of units we've launched uh, north of the United States here has been a very large number and it's all been inbound inbound inquiries coming to us. So we've not sent anybody uh, to Canada. All of our training is done virtually, including we do uh, Zoom walkthroughs of the space prior to the product starting to be served. We look at their, we make them cook food for us uh, over the internet, so to speak, where we're watching it. We look at their setup and we go through all the safety and and protocols to make sure the food is being done the way it's supposed to be done.
1: Uh, Now, in this case, uh, Wabao is uh, an Asian fast casual concept. Does that mean you will deal with Asian-specific restaurants because of uh, what they they have to steam, or it can be anywhere?
4: It's anywhere. I actually try to avoid partnering with Asian restaurants only because once the product arrives to that restaurant, we don't want them selling it on their regular menu. So we partner with, yes, we do Asian food, yes, we do sushi, but we try to do as many other vehicles out there because there are many more other types of cuisine. Again, our food is just steamed. So you don't require walks. You don't require kitchen hoods. You don't require anything from a ventilation standpoint. So literally anybody can turn this on because steam dissipates after 10 feet and myself included, even I can boil water. So it makes it very easy to produce.
1: Uh, How much of an impact walk me through what COVID did for your business a little bit.
4: So prior to COVID, we had about 11 people in our corporate office, our home office here. And we had one location running this idea for us. That was January of 2020. And then March 17th-ish here in the United States, they shut down dining rooms. And at the end of tw- December of 2020, you know, eight months later, we had 170 so locations. And we added another three or 400 in, 2020, uh, in 2021. And now we've done over 700 of them. And really what it is, is we had this idea before COVID. I think that's very important for your listeners to understand. Mm -hmm. We thought about the mom and pop coffee shop that only has two day parts, no third meal period. We thought of ice cream uh, places here in Chicago. It gets very cold in the winter and ice cream sales go down and how we could help someone selling ice cream. We thought of hotels where they have an entire kitchen and a room service staff but nobody actually eats inside restaurants and orders room service. And we thought of catering companies and how they have a full kitchen, but they literally have business one night a week. And we could give all of those people another revenue stream. And our goal is for every one of our partners to do $2,000 a week in sales. That's a hundred thousand dollars a year annually. And based on the metrics we put together, they can keep 40% of that Mm -hmm. after all expenses are paid. They can pocket $40,000, $40, and that's you know rent, that's management, that's hourly employees, that's food on the table. If you have five restaurants or 10 restaurants, you can make half a million dollars in cash by partnering with us. So it's really a way that has helped restaurants survive, and that's why we had this growth, this unheard of, unexpected, exponential hockey stick growth because of the economics positive, and the fact that people had no other way to sell, and they could only sell so much of their food on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. The last piece I'll put on that is because it's Asian food, not everybody can cook Asian food, right? There's tricks to the trade, or there's certain flavors or training that's to be done. Because our food is simply steamed, anybody can offer it, and it gives it a lower competitive set. So when you open up the third-party delivery apps, there's not as many Asian restaurants, as there may be hamburgers, pizza, chicken wings, and so on.
1: Uh, Now, Jeff, uh, the bigger issue of Uber Eats and Skip the Dishes, this business model of yours wouldn't work without these delivery services. I'm actually really amazed at how popular these app-based food services um, at its core. I mean, in your mind, what's driving this? Is it just simply just the issue of convenience?
4: Yeah, well, uh, make no mistake about it. I fully believe and will scream from the rooftops that these third-party delivery apps save the restaurant industry. Without them, we never would have been able to survive because we could not get food to people. Furthermore, the reason why they're doing so well is nobody knows what Bow is. There's no storefront. All these virtual restaurants that people are running, there's no way to tell people you exist except for on the third-party delivery apps. So when you ask, you know, how do they keep going and what's going on, I fully believe there's a convenience factor. It's a one-stop shop. You know, for instance, for instance here in the United States, I shop a lot of Target because everything you need – is at Target. I don't need to go to three or four different stores. Mm-hmm. Target does grocery. Target does convenience. Target does everything you need from life to death. You can get at Target. So it's one-stop shopping. You open up Skip the Dishes, you have this me- literally a menu of multiple different ethnicities and restaurants and flavors to be searching from. You don't need to go anywhere else. And now, as the restaurateur, we want you to order from com. If you go to wildbow.com, you can type in your zip code and we'll show you where the nearest location is. You can order from it. We prefer that. That's better for the, the individual restaurant to work. And we recognize that consumers want convenience. They want that one-stop shop. And that is why you'll continue to see the growth of these companies as they, as they add more opportunities for the consumer to enjoy, whether it's alcohol, whether it's uh, uh, shipping, whatever it may be to their platforms to continue to keep people staying on the app for as long as possible.
1: Uh, so, um, I'm, you know, I'm really quite surprised you still think, even with all this growth that we've seen over the last few years, particularly with the, the pandemic, you still think we're in inning two of a nine-inning game?
4: A 100%. I mean, look, think of any product out there that you, that you live and die by, or even just think of any restaurant that you go to all the time. If it's only been two or three years into it, it's not old and stale. You still go to that favorite restaurant. You're still buying that opportunity and being part of it. Now, look, it's the job of the restaurateur to continue to evolve and innovate your menu to keep you going back to that one particular restaurant. But the idea of delivery and virtual, I'm telling you, there's going to be so much more to come, whether it's from drone delivery whether it's from the ability to order from multiple restaurants at one time and not have to order from multiple restaurants, but you can do a one-stop shopping at this and that versus going back in and out of the app. I think you're going to continue to see incubation and trial and error of, and error of restaurant concepts that are going to start in this, uh, this capacity and then grow. And then think about it outside of just ordering on your phone, but think about how the virtual dining experience can translate to food service places like Healthcare facilities and manufacturing plants and schools, how all of a sudden you have a full kitchen in your college dorm and they could be running seven or eight different types of cuisine just on the, on the college campus. There's so many different ways. Think of it in an airport. Imagine a communal kitchen in a sports stadium where all the food's coming out. If you really think about it, if you go to a sports stadium here in the United States, they have a concession stand that makes hamburgers and hot dogs and pretzels and popcorn and all these different things you can make that same environment with all these different menus coming out of it to be delivered across the stadium. There's so much opportunity. I I, I personally am extremely excited for the next, you know, three, four, five years of the, quote, virtual space as you see new innovation and new technology and new evolution of the idea continue to grow.
1: Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it.
4: Thank you for having me on, and I hope everyone goes to wowbow.com and tries this out.
2: This is the Jazz Joe Hall Show on 980 CKNW.
1: Welcome back to the show. And of course, you're listening to St. Elmo's Fire, performed by John Parr. It's a song one thinks of when you talk about our next guest. Rick Hansen is an athlete, a philanthropist, and an activist for uh, people with disabilities. He's most known, of course, for his Man in Motion tour of the mid-1980s, where Rick and his team wheeled over 40,000 kilometers through 34 countries, raising awareness about the potential of people with um, disabilities. Now, the journey for Rick Hansen actually began 50 years ago today rick was paralyzed from the waist down suffering spinal cord injuries uh, in a car accident today 50 years ago now on an emotional trip he revisited the site of the life altering accident near williams lake today uh, knowing this uh, knowing that we were he was going uh, knowing that today was going to be a tough day and an emotional day for him we spoke to rick a few days ago about his inspiring five decade journey uh, what does uh a day like June 27th mean for you? I mean, there has got to be so many emotions um, that will be going uh, through your mind uh, as you look back.
5: Yeah, you know, it's it's really hard to believe that it's been 50 years since I was a 15 year old kid just coming out of grade 10 high school on a great adventure on a on a trip of a lifetime to salmon fish in the Bella Coola Valley, and and then uh, my buddy Don Alder and I decided to hitchhike home a little early and get back the Williams Lake Stampede, and uh, and then, of course, we ended up in the back of a pickup truck, and it crashed and broke my back, damaged my spinal cord, and uh, changed my entire life. I couldn't believe what had happened. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, now, t- t- to confirm, you're going to be visiting the exact site um, uh, on the 27th then?
5: Yeah, the goal for me is just to go back to reminisce and to reflect uh, on that moment and and I haven't been there, and so I'll be, uh, I'll be spending a little bit of time there just kind of contemplating, uh, you know, the enormity of that moment. But at the same time, you know, then moving into the community and, and reminding myself uh, with a sense of gratitude how, how far things have come, how I've been able to progress from that feeling of such despair and wanting to, in many ways, sell my soul for the use of my legs again. Uh, to a place now, 50 years later, where I would never trade my life uh, for the use of my legs, and that came with the support of an amazing family and friends, friends like Don Alder, who were in the back of the pickup truck with me and uh, traveled with me on many adventures, including the Man in Motion Tour, and and, uh, of course others who inspired me to believe that I could still be an athlete and represent my country and others still that believed in my crazy dream of wheeling around the world in a wheelchair, and then even more that wanted to pick up the challenge and all these years since systematically helped change Williams Lake uh, to be a more accessible and inclusive community.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, We have one person in common, Bob Redford, who was your volleyball coach, and was my volleyball coach too, and I went to Kalamitza Secondary many years ago now, and, and he's the one who encouraged you to continue with sports after the accident?
5: Yeah, Bob, you know, and that entire teaching staff at so were so pivotal for me at that early stage when I went back to school and, you know, didn't really understand anything about Paralympic sport, and Bob kept asking me about, uh, you know, the sport side, and and I kept saying, oh, you know, uh, it, it, it's that, I don't know, that doesn't sound like sport, and he, he just looked at me and said, hey, don't you know that there's no reference in the dictionary that says that you have to use your legs in order to be an athlete? And, you know, and then he introduced me to, you know, how competitive Paralympic sport was. And he also encouraged me to continue on the same track that I had before my injury, which is to want to be a a teacher and a coach and to go to UBC. And I had the courage to put in an application uh, to the university phys ed department, and they they turned me down and encouraged me to take first year at science and then maybe have a conversation. And I was just going to completely walk away from the idea, seeing it as a rejection. And Bob said, Hey, you know, they're, they're setting precedent here. No one's ever been there. You just go in there and show them that you're the person and next year they'll take you. And, and he was right. And if it wasn't for Bob Redford, I would have never gone to UBC. And, uh, and the pathway that unfolded after that would have never happened. So, so much gratitude for, Bob, and and so many teachers in Kalamitza who welcomed me and found a way to help me move forward again. Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, The Man in Motion tour uh, caught the attention of so many people, millions of people across um, the world, uh, Canada here, and especially here in British Columbia. How did the idea come about? It's all well and good to talk about something like that, but to actually move forward with a tour that takes you to so many different countries and areas and regions uh, is a huge amount of work uh, and planning behind something like that. You need a really strong core team to be be there for you every single day. How did that come about?
5: Yeah, well, the inspiration, of course, came when I was in the rehab center, still dreaming about trying to you know, fill in the the blanks of what life was going to be like in this new world. And maybe on that old dream I had of a bike tour with me and my buddies around the world one day and and uh, I thought about that, and maybe from a wheelchair, but ah, uh, you know, I couldn't do it. You know, it's crazy. And but Bob's inspiration, you know, helping me move down the Paralympic sport world, you know, eventually led me into wheelchair marathoning, uh, representing my country, winning world championships and gold medals, but also, you know, literally meeting people from around the world and experiencing the same things. Their attitudinal challenges and the barriers of society uh, physically and socially. And, you know, I just decided that I needed to take my personal talent as a marathoner and my experience traveling the world and seeing barriers and wanting to change it. And an inspiration of having to uh, have the privilege of being able to recruit Terry Fox into our our, uh, wheelchair basketball team, the Vancouver Cable Cars and Terry's journey, uh, being inspired by our team and, and Stan and and then eventually uh, doing his Marathon of Hope, uh, I realized that a byproduct of his journey was that people were looking at ability, not disability. And I thought, well, that was going to be the message and the, and the fundamental way that I could actually combine an old dream with my talent and with my purpose to make a difference. And so it emerged. And it starts with then just your team, my coach, Tim Frick. Don Alder, who was in the back of the pickup truck with me, my cousin and a small home team group. And uh, they literally believed we worked hard and probably the greatest success of the whole tour was taking that first step uh, on that day on March the 21st of 85. Mm
1: -hmm. I remember many years later uh, when I was based in China. Uh, you retraced the Steps of the Man in Motion tour. I think it was the 25th anniversary at that time, about 2011, I believe it was, 2010, 2011. And um, we had talked about uh, you know, construction in nations like China where they're putting up thousands and tens of thousands of buildings and the ability to make sure that they're wheelchair accessible in other parts of Asia and other parts of Europe as well. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the work that your organization does in regards to... Um, making sure these buildings and the construction that's out there in, in so many cities, you know, you really are trying to encourage accessibility in so many facilities around the world.
5: Yeah, you know, it's hard to believe, you know, in, in, in all these years since that one of the biggest and most fundamental changes is that, you know, countries like China, you know, obviously Canada and the States and many others. have fundamental uh, human rights and and legislation that's been put in. The UN uh, mandates every nation to do that, but saying the words and making it happen are two different things. And there's lots of barriers for people with disabilities. 1.3 billion people on the planet living with disabilities, aging boomers having many challenges. And and probably the biggest uh, barrier still today is that The places and spaces that we live, work, learn, and play are not being built fully accessible and inclusive so people can not just participate but contribute. And and we have to normalize that. And so we built a a rating and certification program, a training program to get uh, architects, engineers, city planners, advocates all up to the same universal standard and turn the tap off of all these new buildings being built with still barriers in mind and then also create a metric where if someone asks you how accessible are you, you actually can measure it because you can compare against the global framework. And so we're, we're building out this global movement, which is really what I hoped to do back when I was young on the original Man in Motion tour, but here we are all these years later actually understanding what it takes for a true movement, not one man in motion, many in motion speaking the same language, measuring the same things, and and, and interpreting and translating that in thousands and then millions of people around the world. And so I'm super inspired by where we're at today. And, you know, this celebration of 50 years of progress, it's not just about my personal journey. Mm -hmm. And ironically, coming back to the city of Williams Lake, uh, there's a first South Asian mayor, Mayor Rather, who's, uh, you know, the mayor of Williams Lake to show how far we've come in inclusivity there's reconciliation uh, with the First Nations community in Williams Lake, and and there's reconciliation for people with disabilities. It's no longer that 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 moonscape of inaccessibility. When I was there, it's it's a place that's welcoming, and they're still improving, and there's still more work to be done, and they're committing to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things that uh, what I found uh, interesting, you know, we talk about your achievements uh, <clears throat> uh, on uh, the. Field uh, in regards to uh, raising dollars uh, for the Man in Motion tour and this organization that you've begun or started to to look at accessibility in the facilities that we build. Um, but I also I think recall when I, in China running running into one of your daughters who were part of that that tour. What's family life been like? I mean, you're a busy man, uh, but uh, you're also dad, your husband as well. I mean, what has that been like? Just in regards to your busy schedule and and still, you know, you have, a, have to have a personal life. You have to still play the husband and, 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 and dad as well. What's that been like uh, as well throughout all these years?
5: Well, you know, it's, it's it's really phenomenal. It's probably one of the greatest gifts that I've ever had is to be able to meet Amanda when I dislocated my shoulder and, and uh, she had uh, been the physio to help put me back together again. And afterwards, uh, we continued to see each other and, started dating, and she was on the tour with me. And and she was the pivot person to actually ensure that the tour didn't blow up because uh, she was a friend and an advisor and a tremendous member of our team. Our family, uh, you know, Emma, Alana, Rebecca, you know, the joy of our lives and, you know, to watch them grow as humans face their challenges and to be there, you know, with love, uh, giving and receiving. And and now uh, to have our uh, two grandsons and uh, and our third on the way, uh, it's uh, it's phenomenal. And so in spite of the busyness, there's always that commitment that you know, you're know you there and, and, and you find the time. And it's the one thing that, you know, some of my mentors had uh, encouraged me is to remember that, you know, that you don't want to be at the end of your career saying, you know, I, I wish I'd had more time for my family. And so that's always been a, a, a tough balance, but it's been one that I've, Managed and and you know you make sacrifices for it, uh, but it it comes back because it matches your values and your priorities. Yeah,
1: uh, Rick, uh, I hope you get some time to do some fishing up uh, in the Caribou when you're there. I know you're you're an avid fisherman. But I hope you get some time uh, with your busy schedule. Uh, are you planning any fishing?
5: Yes, I am. I'm I'm actually <laughs> going to be spending some time with my, with my brother, and uh, and uh, and uh, the two of us are going to get up and. Get into the you know into the caribou and on a couple of little uh, lakes there and and uh, and then we're going to have some uh, dinners together and so it's going to be a lovely balance of you know of uh, looking back you know of being able to reflect and uh, honor the progress and and uh, the champions and the Williams Lake Stampede uh, to be honorary parade marshal with all the difference makers who will join me. And, uh, and and really uh, feel a sense of optimism for the future. So uh, that, and then hang out with family, it doesn't get any better than that.
1: No, it doesn't, that's for sure. Rick, thank you so much for your time uh, and sharing this incredible moment um, um, for you and your family and for all you've done for for British Columbia as well. Thank you so much.
5: Well, thank you, Jasmine. I'll say hi to the old hometown for you, okay?
1: <laughs> Please do that. Thank you so much. Bye.